Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. They were building positions in there if for a fight. happened to us, by the time anyone got to us, I think it was chaos. the weather was so bad, there would be no to run boots full of blood. And the next thing I hear was alarms screaming. Chances very, very slick. The soldiers didn't want to go into the ambushes, so they'd send the kids in first. So he was sent in first into an ambush and he got shot in the stomach. It was very hard for me, very hard for my family. And the pain burst. Proud of the crew, proud of what I've achieved and what I'm doing. The volunteer for service was in effect to put your life on the line. For today's bonus episode, Angus Horden spoke with David Buckwalter. David is a veteran of the Vietnam War, but today's conversation was about the Battle of Wow in World War II. It's a piece of history that David has investigated with great passion. He's interviewed veterans of that action and trekked through the battlegrounds in New Guinea. I'm Angus Horden, and I'm speaking today with David Buckwalter. David, how did you become interested in the World War II campaign around Wau, a town in northeast New Guinea? About 12 years ago, after having had service with an infantry unit in Vietnam, I went and walked the Kokoda with uh, one son and four mates. This was quite a, an emotional uh, trip for me. Uh, you know, I could put myself into the position of those soldiers of the days back beyond. So after we finished this walk, I had thought I should like to go back to New Guinea and do another walk involving a military campaign. And after some research, I uh, discovered the uh, Black Cat Track. Reading about that, I um, found it difficult to reconcile why Kokoda had so much press and nobody knew anything about WOW. The Black Cat track has received a certain amount of publicity in recent times where it's been discussed relating to tourists that have uh, uh, gone along that trail and one group of tourists was attacked by local natives and several other native porters were killed. Unfortunately, the... um, trail that they are were actually operating isn't the Black Cat track. It is the track that goes out of the southern point, Kaisenik, which got known by numerous names. It got known as the Mubo track. It got numerous the Crystal Creek track or the Skindy Y track. Skindy Y was a village along the way. Well, people shouldn't get confused with uh, the name of the, the tracks, considering the, the, the more recent publicity. As I said earlier, I I, had read briefly about the existence of the Black Cat track, which encouraged me to chase more information. I bought copies of the official history revolving it. I interviewed veterans of the day. I went to the War Memorial and looked uh, at maps and documents that were down there. On one trip, I came back with 700 photographs of documents. So... The research has been long and involved. I've got uh, most probably every book that's been written about the subject. They're all individual books, such as the unit diaries, so they just focus on one particular thing, not an overall picture of the, of the thing. And so it became a series of jigsaw puzzle which needed to be put together. So before we go to WOW itself, let's create a bit of a context for our listeners 
as to what was the Japanese objective in the South Pacific? Well, prior to the Second World War, Japan, I believe, was being somewhat uh, cut off from a lot of supplies of raw material, in particular oil and stuff. And uh, consequently, I think that was a, a catalyst for their worldwide attack on, on the Pacific area. So on the 7th of December, 41, Japanese Navy, as we all know, invaded Hawaii. But on the same day, they invaded northeastern Malaya and, as a consequence, worked their way down the Malay Peninsula and took Singapore. Shortly after that, early in January, they made a decision to uh, set up a base camp in Rabaul, New Britain. Uh, Australia had a small contingent there, mostly untrained, a few Wirraway aircraft, and as a result, they lasted about five minutes when the Japanese finally decided to invade New Britain. Subsequent to that, the next objective was Port Moresby, and they sent a major flotilla of ships. They ran into the US carrier force, and subsequently we all know about the Battle of the Coral Sea. This put paid to their um, potential landing in Moresby. Uh, a decision was then decided to look to do uh, overland trips to, to try and capture Moresby. If they had got to Moresby initially, there was only two, at that time, reserve forces or CMF forces of the Australians there and um, a company of commandos that were so small in quantity compared with the thousands of Japs that were with the uh, Japanese fleet, they would have lasted five minutes. And David, surely also, if the Japanese had taken Moresby, they could have used it as a base. So any force sent from Australia to take Moresby would have had to endure air attack from a land-based airstrip and made the whole pushback of Japan so much harder. Well, the main objective, once they had um, Singapore, Moresby, Rabaul, and further around in the Pacific, they were able to control the whole of the South Pacific and therefore maintain their supply of uh, raw materials, particular oil. So, David, what was Imperial Japan's interest in WOW and indeed that general area? The Japanese had taken Salamaua and Lei as the land base for their step off of any invasion of New Guinea and across to Port Moresby. WOW had an airport at it and a small contingent of Australian troops. It was the way that the Australian troops could be reinforced and by taking WOW, it protected the Japanese rear, mainly at Lei and Salamar, from land attack by Australian forces. And indeed, to help our listeners with a time clock here. We had the Milne Bay operation around August, September 42. Kokoda was July to November 42. And WOW, which we're talking about today, was only literally a month or so afterwards in January 43. So these events are all flowing onto each other. January 43 was the culmination of, a, of an attack by the Japanese, but not really the start of things because Australian troops were there from May 42 prior to Kokoda. The other feature about uh, WOW was that there's a track that was uh, created by Australian Army engineers called the Bulldog Track, 
which heads down towards Moresby. By that going, using that track, they would be able to get through to Moresby. So there was a reason to protect their back by keeping wow because of the air support, but also that once they had wow, they could actually send people down the bulldog track. So there was a back door. A back door, yeah. Can you tell us the geography of wow? People are familiar with where Kokoda is, but where is wow? Wow is about 75 kilometres southwest of Ley as the crow flies. To give you a bit of a, uh, an understanding of the geography of the area, we have the town, which is in the Bololo Valley, which is a river called the Bololo, and there are two major towns there, Bololo and Wow, which both have airstrips. Historically, they were mining for gold, going back right as far as 1920. As a point of interest, they shipped more air freight into Wow at that time in the 1920s than the rest of the world combined. Machinery and uh, supplies to the gold rush. So, David, I can see how you can fly into this airstrip at Wow, but to get there other than via air, how long would it take to walk from Moresby to Wow along this track? A couple of weeks. Okay, and from the other side of New Guinea, how long would it take to, to access Wow? The northern side. Oh, well, about 10 days, eight, eight to 10 days, yeah. So, so a similar thing to Kokoda, obviously based on the level of resistance, but the same arduous terrain of the hills and valleys. Much more difficult, really, because Kokoda connected Port Moresby with Boona and Gona on the coast. There were quite a, a number of major villages between the two points, basically, and fairly major trail had been created over the ridgelines, which became known as the Kokoda Trail or track, whichever you want to refer to it as. David, having been an infantryman in the jungles in Vietnam, you could really relate to these jungles in New Guinea. Can you explain to our listeners how rugged and fierce that terrain was to fight in? The terrain in Vietnam in general was quite different to New Guinea. A lot of rice paddy in Vietnam, flat jungle areas, some hills, hills that we did operate in in Vietnam, but um, the hills in Vietnam in New Guinea make Vietnam look like a pimple, basically, right? So they're considerably different. So if we get into the Wow, Wandumi, Kaisenic area, where most of the military activity started to take place, we find that there are three trails that flow east from the top of the escarpment that flows through the valley. All the land around these trails is very steep, thick jungle, and no real trails as such. And two of them follow two rivers. So the, the northern one out of Wow follows the Bitoy River. In the middle, you have a high ridge and you have a village at the top called Wandumi, and there's a trail across the top of the ridge. And in the south at Kaisenik, you have another river called the Bui Saval, and there's a track that follows along the spurs on that side of that, uh, that river. So the trails are actually following or going up and over the various spurs that come off the main ridge, unlike Kokoda, where you're just going up and down the ridges, this is much steeper terrain. And we're talking about getting close to vertical in some places. All of these three trails 
link at the village of Mubo. And Mubo is the linchpin to the battle some months later. David, can you share the precursor of the Battle of Wow? At the time, early in May of uh, 42, we had one commando unit, as they became known, they originally called independent companies because they operated independent of the division. There were 10 independent companies in the Australian Army which drew their training from the Brits. One of those, the 2nd 5th, was flown into Wow on the 24th of May 1942. They flew in in DC-3s, or Dakotas as they were known, with all their supplies. They went in, there were no seats on the plane. They sat on the floor with all their kit. They had no food with them because they were told that there was food available from the local NGVR, the New Guinea Volunteer Rifles, available in the valley. They only had one change of clothes with them. The rest of them in their major kits was left in Moresby on the information that they would be trucked over land by the bulldog track by local natives. They never saw those kit bags for 12 months till they got back to Australia and found them all mouldy. So on arrival, they took up um, their um, base in the Bololo area, which was about 35 k's to the north. From there, they split up into two major groups, one to cover the Markham River down near Ley and the other one to cover the Mubo area on the way down to Salamala. And David, how many men are we talking about in this company? So the independent company was made up of about 300 guys. Different to an infantry soldier, that they, they used to carry a lot of um, weapons for independent hand-to-hand fighting, like pistols as well as rifles, knives. They were experts in explosives. That was basically their operation was not to take ground, but rather to hit and run. And that's what their, t- that's what their brief was, was to annoy the Japanese, to make them think that we had a large force up in Wow. The two groups that split up went out on patrols, daily patrols every day. When they went out on patrols every day, they never had adequate food. Typically, if they went out for five days, they might have had three days worth of rations with them, and uh, that uh, was uh, circumvented with local cow uh, cow, which was uh, like root vegetables that they could get from the, from the natives. They lived off bully beef and biscuits for 12 months. That's about it. It was already noted that within the first few weeks, the, the local RAP, the Regimental Aid Post, was already full with guys suffering from malaria, dengue fever and uh, having tropical sores and they'd only been there a few weeks. So David, what does that do to the effectiveness of this fighting force? Within a short time, only about 40% to 50% of the, the, the total command was fit for service. And they were continuously going out on patrol with malaria and other problems. But these guys were tough little kids. So, uh, and David, are they being resupplied via the airstrip with any goods at all? Unfortunately, the uh, US Air Force at that point in time was not particularly uh, established in in Moresby and it wasn't too many uh, months later when what they had were being used on the Kokoda and so rarely did they get any resupply from Moresby so they just had to live off what they had. So 
we've got very difficult circumstances prevailing to a small unit who is running at half strength and given a massive job to do. Yep, and so they they continued this patrolling uh, effort for the first uh, month in, in the Markham area and, and in the Mubo area, having small contacts with the Japanese. But then um, at the end of June, it was decided to do a raid on two locations. One was at Heath's Plantation, which was just out of Leigh. It was the forward post of the Japanese. They had an artillery battery there, and that protected the back end of Leigh directly. And then the other operation was at uh, Salamoa. So just uh, Salamoa was a small village on the coast, about 35 kilometres south of Leigh, and it was a, a little peninsula that used to flow out or run out into the bay, most probably half a kilometre. And um, there was an airstrip there, which the Japanese were using, along with their airstrip at Leigh. Communications tower there, and a raid was planned to hit these two places more or less simultaneously. So on the 27th of um, June 42, the group that was uh, sitting up at Mubo split up into seven parties, each with a specific task. Reckies had been done over multiple days where they knew where every Japanese soldier was, what every building was, and where they were going to go. Each group and each soldier knew exactly what he was going to do. So these groups are like section size, and are they working with the New Guinea rifles? Or? Yes. So the New Guinea volunteer rifles were very knowledgeable of the area. They had little military training, but they knew the real estate backwards. They didn't need a map. So these are locals, yeah. They're locals. In every section, there would be several NGVR guys doing the guiding. They also looked after the carriers, the local native carriers, who often worked for them in a previous civilian life. Every patrol always had locals carrying the gear. And their motivation was to help repel a foreign invader and their hatred for the Japanese. Yeah, except that it um, it was mixed. There were groups of uh, uh, natives that were on our side and there were groups that were on the Japanese side. I might point out that sometimes the Japanese made it impossible for the local tribes not to cooperate with them for fear of... Taking retribution on their families. That's it, exactly, yeah. So at about three in the morning on the uh, 29th of June, seven groups of soldiers hit their various rendezvous targets. Unfortunately, everybody was in position and one group came across a sentry guard who was uh, at his post about two minutes before the kickoff time and decided he need to, needed to walk across the street to have a pee. And uh, when he walked across the street to have a pee, he got faced straight with one of our commandos. The soldier not wishing to um, set off the step-off time of the, the launch of the campaign decided to have a brawl with him. This ensuing brawl ended up resulting in one of the other guys getting his machine gun out and taking care of the Japanese, which put the timing on the raid... Ahead of schedule. Ahead of schedule and in a slight amount of panic to start with. Soldiers were equipped with uh, anti-tank mines, 
which they referred to as sticky mines that they used to throw into buildings or attach to doors and things like that. On one case, they um, spied a bunch of Japanese who were engaging with the local Marys, the name the natives called the girls. They didn't have their weapons with them, so they raced inside to get their weapons when they saw the Australian soldiers, and the doors used to open outwards. So when they raced in, the Australian soldier from the uh, Kanga force threw his satchel grenade in and lent on the door to stop them getting out. The explosion was so great that he was blown straight down the stairs and into the bush followed by a shot which got him in the shoulder. One of the local natives raced forward, grabbed his Thompson machine gun, handed it to the soldier who was now wounded in the shoulder and says, you kill him, Japan man. <laughs> and uh, so this situation with different groups attacking different parts of the compound continued on over the next few hours. They had a mortar group that uh, was just getting into position and uh, even though the timing was uh, somewhat set off a couple of minutes early, they managed to have their mortar in engaging the peninsula where most of the Japanese were in 15 seconds and they lobbed 36 rounds onto the, onto the Japanese. That's some fire rate. Very successfully. So without going into a lot more detail about that raid, Towards the back end of it, there was a bridge that needed to be blown, which was going to allow the Japanese to follow them out of the area. They blew this bridge. They had prearranged to meet the medic there. So they were waiting there for this medic and a bunch of soldiers came down the road. There was some discussion and then they said, who are the two guys in the back there? And they yelled out to the two guys in the back who didn't answer. And after several efforts to engage these two guys. One of them had a bag with him, and so the, one of the guys in the commandos thought, this guy must be the medic, because he's got his medic back with him. Finally, he said to the guy, if you don't identify yourself, I'm gonna shoot you. To wit, the guy bolted off into the bush and the soldier shot him. He was mortified by the fact that he thought he'd killed one of his own mates. But it turned out it was a, a Japanese pilot was making for a, a float plane that was in the harbour. When they got hold of the bag that he had, it had a whole lot of paperwork in it. One of the soldiers was delegated to get that paperwork back to, wow, took me eight days to walk it. This guy took two days to run it. In it, it had the plans for the Japanese invasion of New Guinea. This is including Kokoda and Milne Bay. And as a result, Milne Bay became the first engagement by the Japanese, which ran into uh, Allied forces and they were defeated. If it hadn't been for that raid on Salamaua and the bloody tremendous physical ability of that soldier to run all the way back to Wow, things might have been different. It's funny, David, it brings a parallel in the ancient world to Philippides, who was the Athenian runner that ran to Sparta from Marathon to tell the Spartans that the Persians had landed. And here's another man that did an extraordinary run and had huge ramifications. Yeah, and let me tell you that the run that uh, your Greek friend did nothing on this guy because yeah. the conditions were considerably different. Yeah, Philippides didn't live after that. He died, delivered it and died, right. but the Spartans did nothing. Whilst, as you're saying, that they acted on this timely information which was most critical. How, how fortuitous, really. These guys had a, a, a tough trip. They hadn't uh, had a meal for two days. They had to get themselves back to Wow. 
when I did my subsequent trip many years later, I took 10 hours and arrived in Salamaua under head torch in the dark. So these guys were awesome. And of course, this timing is the same timing that the Kokoda fighting's happening. So the Japanese are now challenged over here and we'll never know how much of a distraction this raid actually was in diverting relief to Kokoda. So David, the Australians are sending out some raids from WOW to try and slow the Japanese advance on WOW itself. Can we run through a couple of these raids which ultimately aren't hugely successful and result in the pulling back of the perimeter back to WOW itself? It was the first one was in October uh, where they had linked up with a new reinforcement, the second 7th Independent Company. And this, unfortunately, even though they killed a lot of Japanese, went wrong because right at the beginning of it, one of our blokes trod on a, a mine that had been left by the Japanese. He was eventually died of his wounds and they had the commanding officer, Lieutenant Colonel Flay, with them. He was uh, delegated to be an observer but uh, decided to take over in the middle of things and uh, called a retreat and uh, Captain Winning, who was in charge, tried to counter that but eventually they had to retreat because there was utter confusion that was going on. Subsequently, with more patrolling around the area and they managed to control the Japanese in Mubo, keep them tied down in Mubo. In early in January, another major raid was uh, attempted where they had three groups of uh, troops, one on one side of the river at Mubo, a ridge called Vickers Ridge, and the other side where they had this hill called Observation Hill and another hill called Matmat. So they had three groups in these particular uh, geographic area around Mubo where they had objective to get to. They left Skindy Y about midnight on the 9th and it took them the best part of uh, two to three days to get to their respective positions. Norman Winning was supposed to fire off the uh, signal to engage at a specific time. Unfortunately, he couldn't get to his location at Matmat on time. The conditions of the hills around there were so steep that guys were holding onto a tree and putting their arm out to pull up the next guy up. Things were so steep and to try and get a, a weapon like the Vickers machine gun up there was next to impossible. The result was that the battle took place. It was engaged late by about an hour. It was reasonably successful. They did manage to uh, kill a lot of Japanese that were down in the, in the valley floor there, but they were unable to retake Mubo. Gradually retreated back to Skindy Y and a lot of them back to Wow. Australian forces at that time knew about the two trails that I mentioned. I mentioned there were three trails. They knew about the two, the one that followed the two rivers, the Bui Saval in the south and the Bitoy in the north. Why they didn't know about the trail that went over the top of the ridge, which uh, finished at the village of Wandermi, is still a mystery, considering that the village is substantial, 500 or so people living there. It was their 
natural route across the hills down to Mubo and why the Australian command never explored or knew what was going on, I don't know. But over the ensuing days after the raid on, on Mubo, Japanese were sighted in various places heading up towards Wow uh, and in and around a place called House Copper. House Copper was on the northern route, the Bitoy River, and it was originally a location where people who used to bring cargo in from Salamau up to Wow, they used to have to change carriers at that point because it was a change of ownership, if you like, of the tribal ownership of the area. So they used to swap there and that became a drop-off point. And what seemed to have happened is the Japanese had found the way through, which went from Wandumi down to Mubo, which left nearby this house copper. So it exposed the flank and they could hit us from the rear. And indeed, similar circumstances happened in the Kokoda campaign. On the 14th of January, we get the 1st of the 17th Brigade, the 2nd 6th Battalion, flying into Wow. I think the next day they managed to get in a company of the 2nd 5th, and then the weather closed in, and for the next 10 days, planes would come in and have to turn around and go back. They just couldn't get anybody on the ground. All these troops were sent off to the two tracks that we knew about to try and block any Japanese invasion up those two tracks. Finally, two days before the battle on the 28th, the 26th, Brigadier Motten, who had now placed in charge of the uh, Kanga force, sent a company of second six blokes across from place called Ballums, which was sort of halfway along that southern track, and they marched uh, 40 hours to Wandumi village. At midnight that night, the phone rang at Ballums and Lieutenant St John, who was in command of one of the platoons of the 2nd, 5th Independent, and he took the call from headquarters and the message just said, Japanese expected attack at Wandumi. Leave immediately and defend. So they were told they were expecting about 300 Japanese are on the track and lights had been seen along the top of the ridge. On the morning of, of the uh, the 27th, the second six guys had arrived. They were an understrength company, so a full strength company was about 100 guys. Uh, when they got the reinforcements from the second fifth independent company, it made up about a full strength company of about 100 guys. Soon after the arrival of the a company of the 2nd 6th, the commander, Bill Sherlock, sent a small patrol up the hill to see if they could see any Japs. They found a couple of guys which seemed to be sending, setting booby traps. There was a small engagement. Most of the guys in this company of the 2nd 6th guys were reinforcements. They weren't the hardened troops that had come back from the Middle East. Both the Japanese and the Australians did a bunk, ran basically, and the Australians ran back down the hill. Later on that day, the second fifth guys arrived and Bill Sherlock asked their commanding officer to send another patrol up to see what the Japs were up to. They were marching through open kunai grass and the Japanese had set up an ambush there and... Um, they set off the ambush early. The forward scout, Des Smith, was shot and killed, but the ambush being set off premature saved the rest of the section. 
Unfortunately, um, Des Smith's body wasn't able to be retrieved. They took his dog tags rather than just one dog tag, and as a result, he's still missing in action today. That night, it was decided to do a patrol down this track, which was to become known as the Jap track, and leave first thing in the morning. They sent out a listening patrol that night. They ran into some Japs. There was a bit of a fist fight uh, due to the fact that the Bren gunner's gun jammed and somebody else shot him. They bolted back down the hill to the, um, where, the, where the troops were um, stationed. About four o'clock the following morning, the Japanese opened up with mortars. Fortunately, a bit short and did minimal damage, but did hit the forward section of uh, nine section, the commando group, and um, two blokes were wounded and one guy was killed. Bill Sherlock immediately took his scout up forward and observed the situation and withdrew the, the company back to a ridge line on top of the ridge. So that's a bit hard to describe, but effectively the main ridge dissipated at Wandumi into a series of spurs that run off in different directions. Each one of these spurs had a an added rise on it about 30 metres and he positioned the Australian forces on top of that ridge. So when the Japanese came through, they had to shoot upwards and they couldn't get onto the top of the ridge because of our blokes had control of it. It's estimated it was about 2,500 Japanese came through that day against 100. They held out for the whole of that day and the following day, taking lots of casualties. And for some unknown reason, which is a mystery in terms of military decision, the Japanese decided to tough it out with the Australians instead of leaving 100 guys there or so to engage the Australians and keep on going down into Wow. As a result, it went on for another day and a half. The weather finally cleared and the rest of the 17th Brigade was able to land. By the time they landed, the Japanese had bypassed the Australians and were at the airport. David, during the Battle of Wow, there were many things that happened. However, there was an important series of radio communications that happened. Can you share those with us? Just after the uh, 10th platoon of the 2nd 5th Battalion arrived to reinforce the guys after a six-hour track, they were down to about 40 men from their original 100, and the COOC was pleading with uh, Brigadier Motten down at Wow, and this is a basically a uh, description of his radio communication. So this is Sherlock? This is Bill Sherlock, yeah. At 14.45 hours, he says, badly need water and men soon. Ten minutes later, he says, we're cut off and look like being overrun. At 15.10, things very hot. Any help sent may be too late. Nine platoon overrun and countering now. With the new reinforcements and the second fifth independent company, he led a bayonet charge and recaptured the nine platoon section. 1550 Sherlock, little ammo, no mortars, 40 men left. 1700, game on again, more Japs coming over the hill. 1800, Captain Sherlock, last message, don't think it'll be long now. Close up in front and flank about 50 yards. Sorry. Yeah. Very sad. And what happened to Sherlock? And Sherlock, 
they they withdrew down the hill and um, there's an old log bridge down there which was just a log that they used to cross the natives used to cross and uh, Sherlock and a couple of guys got over there uh, Alan Smith who was the runner for uh, for Bill Sherlock was on the bridge when the machine guns opened up and uh, they took out one of the guns, machine gunners, but the other one got Sherlock. Alan Smith fell in the creek and was picked up by, by uh, some other guys later on. The Japanese, as I say, were at the airport within 100 metres or so and our guys were taking casualties as they were getting off the planes. And they went straight into action, literally out of the plane and into action. They gradually pushed the Japanese back a fair way and the following day uh, the first of our artillery arrived on a DC-3. You can imagine these Dakotas arriving with more troops and equipment and having to land uphill. The procedure apparently was that they would land a couple of these planes at one time and they'd race to the top of the runway. They would spin the plane around, face down, back down the hill again, everybody out and, you know, within a couple of minutes they would jettison everybody out of the plane and they'd be off again and head back to Moresby to pick up more people. When they got the artillery on the ground, uh, they had the first artillery piece on the ground the following day and within an hour they had it assembled and firing. What was this, a 25-pounder? 25-pounder, yes. If Bill Sherlock hadn't held out for that day and a half against overwhelming odds... There would have been no airstrip for the guys to land on. There'd no airstrip for the guys to land on and the Japanese would have had, well, game, set, match and the resulting battle that was going to take place over the next nine months and eventual invasion by 9th Division at Ley would never have happened. It would have been diverted, yeah. Yeah. So that stand of that hundred and there's been parallels in history... Australian Army at Long Tan, Rourke's Drift, Thermopylae, etc. But it was a stand by a few men against many at a critical time. The turning point of the Battle of Well in our favour? No, certainly. And, and just to make it more clear, when you, you mentioned the Battle of Long Tan, which my unit was involved in, we had the support of artillery the night of the Battle of Long Tan. Some 3,000 rounds were fired that night in support of Delta Company. Without those, that artillery in the 3,000 rounds, I think most people would agree that Delta Company would have been wiped out to the man. There was no artillery or mortar support for Alpha Company 2nd 6th Battalion and the, and the commandos. So it's an it's a, uh, unbelievable story. David, to your point earlier about people worthy of recognition of superhuman effort, here's just one of many stories you've shared with us today. The CEO of the Second Six said a serious situation that would have resulted in the loss of the Bololo Valley was averted by Sherlock's gallant action. He was awarded an MID posthumously due to our bloody crazy award system. He should have got a VC. David, what would you say is the importance of the defeat of the Japanese at well? It lessened the, the war by, I would think, at least a year because we wouldn't have been able to take them out of lay particularly easy. There was no way to, to get anybody in there other than by the sea. The distance from any, any landing strips was a long way from lay other than wow. So a real challenge it would have been. 
David, subsequent to the Battle of Wow, there was also an important engagement in the Bismarck Sea. A lone Liberator bomber doing patrol over the area around uh, New, New Britain sighted a convoy of uh, 16 ships leaving uh, the area with an unknown destination. They tried to track them for quite some time. They lost them. The convoy kept on changing direction to obviously avert detection. Finally, two days later, a RAF Catalina sighted the convoy, immediately gave the coordinates. We had a large contingent of US Air Force with um, B-17 fortresses, uh, Boston's, Mitchell's, based on the uh, at Moresby and on the uh, near Boona and Gona. We also had RAF bow fighters and bow forts, other contingents from the uh, from the Dutch Air Force and the RAF, and they attacked in waves at different altitudes depending on the type of plane they were. So they would uh, come in with bow fighters at low altitude, more or less at sea level, and attack the, the bridges of the ships. And while the bigger, heavier bombers were overhead at a higher altitude, bombing them. They got most, I think, if not all, they got all the transports. Four of the, um, the destroyers were sunk. The, the destroyers picked up some of the survivors and they did manage to get some of those to laid. The rest of them were unfortunately uh, had to be slaughtered by our, uh, our air forces at sea. And David, the significance of this is we're talking an amphibious force of, what, 3,000 crack Japanese troops, which, if they had been deposited anywhere, could have been a real game-changing event in the campaign. Yes, they would have been a great attribute to the defence of Ley and Salamau. David, your account the Battle of Wow is very gripping. However, we haven't heard of Wow whilst we know everything about Kokoda. What is it in Australian folklore that we have forgotten this war that you're talking about today? I guess because, well, I guess because of the, the fact that it was the first major action, it got the publicity. But when you look at the, um, the two campaigns, when you consider that Every day, supplies were being able to be brought through from Moresby to reinforce the guys on the Kokoda. At Wow, it never happened. They never got reinforcements. They didn't even get the food, enough food to do the job right from the word go. When you read the medical report on file at the Australian War Memorial, which describes the condition of the second, fifth independent company went just before they were due to return to Australia after their 12 months tour, it said that not one soldier was fit for combat, including the MO, the medical officer. Every single last man was suffering from beriberi, which is malnutrition, lack of vitamin B, had malaria or dysentery countless times, dengue fever. One guy that I met was on the list and it said, that he'd had it 11 times. And when I met him and interviewed him, he told, started to laugh. And I said, I had malaria in Vietnam once. Hey, funny. <laughs> I said, what are you laughing at? He said, 11 times was the number of times they reported it. Well, I, I'm not aware of any other unit record where 100% of a force has been written off. So I think that says enough in itself. They never got relieved. All the troops on, on Kokoda got relieved. David, what is it about WOW that has inspired you to 
come and tell us this story today? Well, I guess as um, an ex-infantry soldier and my early research, which got me to go there, and then I since then have done four trips up there, tromping around the battlefield, the, patrol, the areas where soldiers patrolled. I didn't have a Type 37 webbing on me. I had my pack and I didn't have a, a 303 or a Thompson submachine gun, but I was in there doing it, doing it tough. So David, really it's your empathy as a fellow infantry soldier, having served in jungles in Vietnam, appreciating the incredible terrain that these guys went through and the fact that here's an amazing story that hasn't really been told, but you've told it today. David, thank you so much for coming and sharing this with us. Thank you for your lifelong passion in continuing to research and document and tell the story of these wonderful men like Sherlock who actually helped turn the tide of war. Thank you for your service and thank you for your time today. That was Angus Horden speaking with David Buckwalter. For my conversation with David about his time in Vietnam and life after, look up the Season 1 episode, number 5, David Buckwalter. If you enjoyed the episode, let us know by tweeting about it and tagging at LOTLpod. To see photos of David trekking through New Guinea and exploring WOW, look up Life on the Line podcast on Facebook and Instagram. For more information, visit our website, www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com, where you can also send us a message. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget. <laughs>